The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel, Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to, he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again the Lord called Samuel, and got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as the other, as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until the morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked, do not hide it from me. May God deal with you be ever so severely if you hide, hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord, let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Bathsheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Thanks, Cynthia. Uh, good morning and welcome again to Hiawatha Church. Uh, like Ellen and Peter said earlier, my name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here, and we want to uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Whether you are a guest this morning or Hiawatha is your home, we are glad that you are here. Right now, we're in a sermon series in the books of First and Second Samuel. We, we got to meet uh, Samuel in our passage just right here. We'll talk more about him, but the he is the guy that is, uh, these books are named after. And we are in our, our third or fourth sermon here as we begin to go through this uh, very long, uh, two books of the Bible. Originally, they were just one 
book, but so long they're written on two scrolls, hence the first and second Samuel name will be in these books uh, till about the end of the school year. But before we hop into our passage, I know you're all wondering what's up with the mustache, so let's just get this uh, over with. Uh, last night, our church put on an event. Part of it was a costume contest. A bunch of you were there, and I went as Ted Lasso. So uh, not, not too bad, but uh, my wife went as Wednesday. So that's what's going on. Didn't have time to shave this morning, so I know that question's going to be in your mind all morning. So just let's get it over with. All right, back to our passage now. So today we're going to look at uh, the calling of Samuel. So Samuel is, like we saw in here, he's uh, a young man or an older boy who's uh, serving in the tabernacle, which is the, the, the tent version of the temple. The temple hasn't been made yet. And so if you don't know much about this genre or where we are in the biblical storyline or this historical uh, history where, where we are here, uh, this book is history. It's teaching theology, but it's history of the uh, Israelites, of, of the Jewish people. And right before this book is uh, another book called the book of Judges. And so if you know about that book, that is kind of like the setting that First Samuel uh, begins. And so God has rescued his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. He's brought them into the promised land. And so they're in their land, but they don't have a king. So the whole book of Judges is this, uh, it's, it's kind of like a, a downward spiral. Things keep getting worse and worse. But we, we see this phrase again and again, and we'll probably talk about this more in Samuel. But there is uh, this phrase that we see again and again, is that uh, there was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And you could guess just how poorly that goes. Instead of God being their one true king, um, they don't follow him, nor do they have a human king. And so everyone just does what's right in their own eyes. And so they'd uh, rebel against God. Things would go horribly. And then God would send in a judge, which was basically like a military figure or someone who would bring a victory. And so he would help defeat God's people's enemies. And there'd be some peace. And then they would forget God again and rebel against him and, and worship false gods. And that was kind of the downward spiral of the book of Judges. And that's where First uh, and Second Samuel picks up. There's no king in the land. People are more or less still doing whatever is right in their own eyes. There's no temple yet, and so there's uh, a tent, tent of meeting, or the tabernacle, which is basically like the temple, but a smaller version that is with tents. And that's where Samuel and this guy Eli are serving. So within this tabernacle, within this tent, there is uh, different courts, different spaces. At the very inside, is where God's presence is dwelling and where he is living amongst his people, yet with many barriers, many rules, many things keeping sinful people away from a holy God. So that's kind of setting up our story where we are here in First uh, Samuel 3. So what we just read here, uh, we see actually this, this character. He's called a boy, but he's probably a, a teenager here, not uh, you know, a preteen or a very young boy. This boy named Samuel, he, he's not a priest. He's not from the priestly line or family. Yet, if you remember from a few weeks ago, uh, this man, or this boy was given over to God to serve in the tabernacle. And so this boy, Samuel, is serving there under the priest Eli. So Eli is, is the main priest. He's the high priest right now. And Eli's sons are also kind of ruling and serving as priests under him. These guys named Phineas and Hopney. 
Yet as you saw at the end of our passage today, uh, God pronounces great judgment on these two guys. On all of Eli's household, but especially uh, because of his two sons, Eli and Hophni. And so uh, back in last chapter, we didn't read all this for, for, or, uh, for the sake of time, but in the last chapter, what is going on is we find out that these two sons, Eli and Hophni, or no, sorry, not Eli, um, Phineas and Hophni, are abusing their privileges. They're, they're abusing their power as priests. They are uh, extorting money and resources from all the people who are coming to this place to worship God. They are taking advantage of the women that are there as well and sleeping with them. So they're abusing their power. They have, uh, they're expressing horrible sexual sin against the people and against God. And their greed just really has no bounds. And everyone in Israel knows about this. The priests of God are doing this horrible stuff. And Eli finds out about it and kind of confronts them, but really doesn't make them change at all. And so that's kind of what sets up uh, a prophet who shows up at the end of chapter 2 and kind of pronounces the same thing that uh, God also said to Samuel. And so we have great sexual sin, greed, and abuse of power by the priesthood against God's people. And here, even though this is not the, the point of our passage, we can just see uh, this great warning of the destructiveness and the allure of things like power and greed and sexual sin. We see two people who are supposed to be God's representatives. Two people, and you can include Eli in here as well, who's not doing a great job as high priest as well. But two people who are uh, literally just feet from the presence of God here on earth. People who are serving God. People who know the law who probably have much of it memorized, who are supposed to be the closest people to the one true God, both spiritually as well as physically, yet the allures and the temptations of power and full stomachs and materialism and greed and lust overtake them. And so we are just, uh, should be kind of shocked that the supposed, or the people that are supposed to be the heroes, the God figures, the protectors, the leaders are actually the ones who are abusing others. And God's judgment is against them. At the very end of chapter 2, right before what Cynthia read in our passage today, we see in contrast with the, with the unrepentant evil sons of Eli, we have another son, the boy Samuel. And we read, uh, or yeah, back in chapter 2, it says, The boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and favor with the Lord and with the people. So in great contrast to the sons of Eli, who all of Israel knows that they are uh, abusing the people, taking advantage of them, hurting them. And God has great uh, punishment and wrath towards them. In contrast to that, we see this new character, Samuel, kind of rising and in great contrast to them. And as chapter 2 ends, we read uh, the words of a prophet who comes to Eli and says, uh, this is God's punishment against your family because you did not stop your sons. You were okay with what was going on. You were complicit in it. And what they were doing is horrible and disgusting and abusive. And part of the judgment that this prophet says against Eli and his sons and his family is this, uh, verse 35, back in chapter 2. God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful high priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind 
I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one forever or for always. Anointed one just meaning uh, king. And so we actually see later on in the story that a new high priest will come, a new family that God will use as the high priest. Uh, a guy named uh, Zadok or Zadok and his family will reign under the kings. We're going to see that much uh, later on in the story. Yet this will foreshadow Jesus Christ who, as uh, Ellen read this morning in our uh, passage, Jesus is the ultimate high priest who does everything the priesthood will go, is supposed to do and will do. But we'll come back to Jesus in just, a, in just a minute. So that kind of sets the stage for our passage today. Evil men uh, who are abusing the people that they're supposed to be protecting and serving, uh, profaning, blaspheming the name of God, are now under judgment. And we have this new character kind of rising. So that kind of sets up our passage today. And when we read our passage today... The calling of this uh, young man, this uh, boy named Samuel. We start off with this verse. The boy Samuel ministered under, uh, before the Lord under Eli. And in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. And so our passage starts off today by saying God did not speak much. There were not visions. God was seemingly distant as, as the leaders, the mouthpieces uh, of God were actually doing horrible things. God himself was not speaking. And then in contrast to that, we see that God begins to speak again. He begins to share visions. He begins to show up Last chapter, at the end of two, he's showing up to judge evil. And here, he's showing up to bring rescue. And so, uh, it starts off by saying, the word of the Lord was rare. There were no visions. And then, we hear about Samuel. So, this young boy uh, serving in the tabernacle, serving in the tent of meeting. And that night, he hears a call. And he thinks it's Eli. And so, he runs to Eli and says, did you call me? And Eli's annoyed. And he's, go back to bed. I didn't say anything. This happens again and again. Finally, after the third time, Eli goes, oh man, something must be going on. The, the word of the Lord is, has been rare. We haven't seen or heard visions in so long yet. This must be what's going on. And so he tells Samuel what to say. And for the fourth time, God shows up and says, Samuel, Samuel. And he responds with, uh, Lord, I'm here. Speak to me. And God says, uh, to Samuel, what he's about to do, how he is going to uh, punish Eli and his household for the way that they are uh, blaspheming God and, and not doing what they're supposed to and, and even hurting uh, people. He speaks of the coming judgment on the house of Eli and then appoints Samuel as a new mouthpiece and as a new prophet who, in great contrast to Eli and his family, will uh, serve and lead courageously and godly, the people of Israel. And so as the story uh, unfolds in chapter 3, we see this great contrast between uh, Phineas and Hophni and Samuel, two sons, or two groups of sons. We see great contrast between uh, these characters. And then we also see this passing of Eli's power, or, or, or the priestly power, or the, the power of the law, and moving towards this new character, Samuel, which we'll unpack a little bit more. And then our passage ends with great and even more contrast uh, after, you know, 
15 verses, it starts by saying the word of the Lord was rare and then ends in verse 19 saying the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground or uh, the uh, CSB translation says he, uh, God fulfilled everything that Samuel prophesied. And all of Israel recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And so we have, at the end, we have this uh, new thing that God's doing. He's showing up. He's speaking. He's letting his people know that he is there and that he cares about them and that he's working through this new guy, Samuel, in new and real and powerful and true ways, unlike what was going on with Eli and his household. So that's our story. So now let's kind of unpack it and see what's going on here. Why why is this in the Bible? Why is this important uh, for us, whether you're a Christian or not? What does God have to say to us today? And uh, for a lot of these sermons, we're going to kind of look at 1 Samuel through two lenses or in two ways. The human side. So these are are real people that really live. This is historical. This really did happen. And these real people are interacting with the true God, the one God. A real God. And so what is going on in this passage? Or, or what does it mean for us as people who are also human? Going through similar experiences and people who uh, want a relationship with God. So first we're going to look at it through, through the human side. And then later we'll also look at this same passage and see, uh, see it through a, a d- divine or symbolic or gospel uh, side. But we'll get to that in, in a little bit. But first let's just look at this through the human lens. And the first thing like we, have, like we have seen is that God continues to reveal himself through his word. He continues to show up and to speak. So there was a long time where visions and God's word was rare, but he shows up and he's speaking again and again, right? Great contrast between the beginning of our passage here where it says the word of the Lord was rare, there weren't many visions, and then it ends with saying there was a prophet, And God revealed himself to Samuel through his words. There were visions. And so this might just, uh, or probably leads to many of us just asking kind of similar questions. So for us as humans living in this world, is, is this still how God speaks to us? Does God speak to us through visions? What we see in 1 Samuel 3, is that normal? Or is the word of God rare today? Or maybe does God still speak through prophets? How does God reveal himself? What should we expect? Similar questions uh, we should be asking as we read uh, this passage, as we read uh, 1 Samuel 3. Most of us probably have not had any experiences like we just read in 1 Samuel 3 where God audibly shows up and speaks to us. And I don't know if you describe as God uh, speaking being rare or maybe something pretty common. But for us, who live thousands of years after 1 Samuel 3, and and thankfully on on this side of Jesus, in Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension, we can answer these questions, that what was going on in 1 Samuel 3 is just a different part of salvation history. And so now on this side, we read, uh, even in the New Testament, just some great uh, truths that help us understand What's going on here? In the book of Hebrews, so written after Jesus' life and death and resurrection, uh, we see these questions answered. At the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, we read, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. 
at many times and in various ways. And we saw a bunch of these various ways in 1 Samuel uh, so far. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so here in uh, Hebrews 1, we read about Jesus, the, the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. We, we see here that he is uh, God. He's not just a new prophet or a new priest or a new teacher or the greatest human ever, but we see that Jesus is God. He's also the creator. And we're going to read another passage in just a second that also shows that he is creator. But not only is he God and creator, we also read that he is the purifier of sins. He is, he is the new high priest that unlike old washings and old sacrifices that the priests would do so that sinful Israelites could be purified, could be made innocent, could be clean. There's now a new person doing that. And as we read later in Hebrews or that passage Ellen read this morning, we find out that Jesus is this new priest. He is this high priest that is God and is also the one that removes sin. And so this is the ultimate way that God speaks to us. Yes, God is still speaking. He used to speak through our ancestors. He used to speak uh, in many different ways through prophets and all different types of things. But now in these last days, God speaks to us. He speaks to you and me through his son, Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus is God's word. Jesus is called the word of God. So God continues to speak to us through his word but now that word is ultimately a person. It is Jesus Christ himself. The beginning of uh, the Gospel of John reads, In the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So Jesus is the ultimate word of God. He is the main way that God speaks to us through Jesus' own words, through his life and death, his resurrection and ascension. And as we uh, think about and read the rest of the New Testament and understand what our salvation uh, provides and what comes with this, we see that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we receive things like his spirit and his word and his people. And as uh, we trust in God, he, he gives us his spirit who lives within us, who, who guides us and who speaks to us. And not only that, but that same spirit, the same spirit that inspired these words in, in First and Second Samuel and in Hebrews and in John, that same spirit speaks even beyond First uh, and Second Samuel, beyond the Old Testament, inspires these new words in the, in the New Testament speaking about the history and the theology of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the start of Jesus' church, and then the spread of Jesus' gospel. So Jesus, through his spirit, continues to speak through his word, through the Bible, which is written by God as well. And now he continues to speak to us through his body, the church. So all of these are ways of hearing from God. Ultimately, the one word of God is Jesus Christ and then through knowing him and being called by him, he speaks to us through his spirit, his scriptures, 
and his people, which all flow from the ultimate word of God, Jesus Christ. And so no, we actually don't live in the same era of salvation history where the word of God is rare. We don't live in a place where the main way that God speaks to you and me is through dreams or through visions. Nor do we live in an era where God's will, God's love for us, what he's doing is hidden from us. But now we look to God's word and we see that he is still speaking. He speaks through his son. So practically that means uh, no vision, no dream, no new teacher or author or preacher should ever contradict God's ultimate word of Jesus Christ. And if, if it ever does, it is not actually from God. All right, let's look at one more angle that maybe kind of popped out to you as we are reading. As we look, continue to look at the human side, we see God's great judgment against sin. Maybe when we heard about this judgment, we said, yes, finally, these guys are getting what they deserve. They're evil. They're hurting people. They are abusers. They are evil. Or maybe you kind of bristled because we often don't like judgment. We want God to just forgive and forget. Why does he have to judge? But we read uh, in the Lord's calling to Samuel, he says, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hear about it tingle. And I think this is a bad tingle. This is like the goosebumps of like, oh crap, what's, what's about to happen? At that time, the Lord says, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. So right off the bat, kind of like, ouch. We, we uh, often don't like uh, judgment. We don't like the idea of God's wrath. Maybe some of us are okay with it or, or, or see the goodness and the justice of it. Yet most of the time, us as, as Americans, as Westerners, we wonder, well, why God can't, why can't he just forgive? Why does he bring judgment against People And I actually think that's beginning to wane a little bit. I would say maybe 10 years ago, we really hated any idea of wrath or judgment here in America. Yet, I feel like our culture is beginning to, to change a bit. Uh, we want justice. We want judgment against evil, especially when we're on the victim side or on the good side. And so whether it's things like evil we see in the world, whether it's injustice we see, from power or from leaders, whether it's, uh, or just kind of think of our cancel culture. I think uh, in general, uh, justice is valued in our culture and judgment is now starting to be something we begin to bristle maybe a little bit less against. But what, what, what's going on here? Why is this a good thing that God is pronouncing judgment, even if it's hard to hear? First reason is because it's good that God is protecting people who are being abused and taken advantage of and led astray and away from the true worship of God. So just like a good parent takes away their kid's iPad if they're looking at explicit content or a good friend shows up and pulls a friend out of a relationship that's abusive, God is protecting those he loves. These people are, are taking advantage of Israel. They're literally hurting them. They're literally stealing from them. Uh, many of them, they're uh, abusing uh, sexually. 
as well as just showing all the nation of Israel that this is who the one true God is. So Hophni and Phinehas and then Eli, by being complicit in this, are leading God's people away from him. So it's good that God steps in and protects his people and shows judgment against those who are hurting them. But not just that. We, we see that this judgment is also good because God is fully removing this corruptive, abusive evil because of his love for his people. So he's not just doing this because he's just, because he's good. But this is actually coming out of God's love. He loves the Israelites. He loves these people. And so it's because of his love that his justice is kindled. His judgment against evil is showing up. And while God is just and good and, and him exercising judgment and wrath is good, we might think that that's kind of uh, the biggest part, the biggest puzzle piece of who God is. I don't know how we get this. Maybe it's our own human nature. Maybe it's pop culture. Maybe it's the families we grew up in. Maybe it's the, the Bible passages we've studied. I don't know, but many of us, maybe even most of us, when, when we think of God, we think of a, a good and just God, yet one who's ready to judge, ready to punish, ready to pounce, as if he is, you know, a, a parent who's just kind of just waiting for us to screw up or, or a boss that's just waiting for us to do poorly so he can fire us and bring punishment or judgment Yet let's look at a, we're going to look at a passage in the Old Testament. So as, as God creates a people for himself, as he's rescuing uh, Israel out of Egypt, he shows up and he describes himself to Moses, who's kind of the leader of God's people. And so when God shows up, he says, this is who I am. You want to know who Yahweh is, God's, God's covenant name? You want to know who I am? Let me tell you. And this passage actually gets uh, recorded and, and repeated many times many, many times, all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament. So let's look at how God describes himself as he speaks to humanity and says, you are my people, this is who I am. Let's look at the words he uses to describe himself. Back in Exodus 34, we read, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And so this is how God describes himself. He, he shows up in the midst of Egyptian gods and Canaanite gods, gods that are selfish, gods that don't care about humanity, gods that demand human sacrifice, gods that demand temple prostitution, that demand horrible things. And God shows up and he says, this is who I am. I'm covenanting with you people and let me tell you who I am. And this is how he describes himself. Is this how you would describe God? Maybe... It's a bit easier to think of Jesus as these things because he, I, I don't know, it maybe feels easier, but maybe when we think of God the Father or God of the Old Testament, we don't. But do you think about God like this? That he is first compassionate? That he is gracious? That he's not quick to anger like maybe your dad was or your boss was or your spouse is? But he's slow to anger. 
and that he is just abounding in love. It's pouring out of him in faithfulness. And look at this great contrast. He maintains love to thousands. So he does punish sin, sin to a few generations. But in contrast to that, his love and his faithfulness were go for thousands of generations. And he is a forgiving God. He forgives wickedness, evil. He forgives rebellion and betrayal against him. And he forgives sin. And he's also just because he's good, because he's holy, and because he loves us. So he does not let sin go unpunished. He doesn't let the guilty swindlers and abusers and murderers and idolaters go free, but rather he punishes evil because he loves us and because he is good. This is how God describes himself. This is who the one true God is. And this, these phrases, this description of God is repeated many, many times all throughout the Bible. In his fantastic book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes about this. He says, The Old Testament speaks of God being provoked to anger by his people dozens of times, especially in Deuteronomy, First and Second Kings, and Jeremiah. So, so we're going to see that throughout uh, these next few months. We're going to see God being provoked to anger. Okay? Provoked means something happened to force him, to make him into being angry. So the Old, Old Testament speaks of God being provoked to anger by his people dozens of times. But not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. Provocation? Provocation? Uh, his mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded, about to get us. He's just waiting for us to screw up. But Orland says divine mercy, or we think that divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. Do you believe that? This is who God says he is. He says he is just ready to pour out mercy on you. He just can't wait to give you forgiveness and to show his patience and to show you love. He's not ready to punish you. He's not ready to hate you. He's not ready to be against you. But rather, that needs to be provoked again and again and again. But rather, his love and his mercy and his gracious are ready for us. We'll actually come back to this in a little bit. Okay, so that was the human side. Now let's just take a, a few more minutes as we kind of wrap up here to look at our same passage through a divine side. So if God is, is sovereign, if God is powerful overall, if God is the one who co-authored this whole book, if it's his spirit who wrote it, if God is behind the prophecies that we read and he is powerful in, in writing the story of history, that there can be even greater meanings than in just what the, the author of First and Second Samuel thought or, or what the characters think is actually going on. So the events, the characters, the prophecies in our passage today can have an even greater and spiritual meanings than what's just happening in this time. So let's look at our passage one more time now through this divine lens. And we're going to start off by seeing if, if, if there's 
characters in our story who are symbolic of humanity. Who, who is that? And we might want it to be Samuel. We might be, okay, of all these characters, well, I don't want to be Eli. I don't want to be Phineas or Hophni. How about Samuel? Let, let, let's be Samuel. And of course, there is some picture of who we are in Samuel. Uh, with your community groups this week or your friends or family, I'd I'd encourage you to kind of see a whisper of what salvation looks like in the call of Samuel, how he didn't know God, but God shows up and calls him and loves him. There's a very cool angle on that. So that is there, but I think an even greater picture, a greater symbol of what humanity is apart from God is in Eli's sons. Just bad news for us, right? We want to be the heroes in the story, but we actually probably line up a lot more with Eli's sons than with Samuel. In fact, uh, in the New Testament, so one of the books written to a church just like us, listen to how uh, God through Paul writes to a church just like us and says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, neither, neither the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor thieves, nor the greedy will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And so Paul's writing to a Christian church saying, and, and I, uh, there, there's many more things in this list as well, but these are the exact same things that Hophni, Hophni and Phineas were doing, Right? They were lustful, they were idolaters, they were greedy, they were sexually immoral. They were thieves stealing stuff from God's people. And Paul says to a church just like us, you were this. This is who you were. Apart from Jesus Christ, we were all sinners. We are all rebellious against God. We all did these types of sin. So we too, before we were recreated in Christ, Before our salvation, we too were like Eli's sons. We used our power to benefit ourselves. We lusted after others. We took what wasn't ours, and we were driven by materialism and greed. Whether we realized it or not, apart from Jesus, we just could not help be those type of people. And so it's good news, like we've been saying that, that God is a God of justice. He does not let evil go unpunished. He, he, he does not let the guilty just get away. So that's good news that he punishes evil, that he's, he, he can't be bribed. He doesn't show partiality. But then it's terrifying news when we realize that we are the guilty, that in our rebellious hearts, we are people that take advantage of others, that use our power to bring ourselves glory and praise and, and all different kinds of things. In Samuel, or in Samuel, we see Eli pick up on this. Back in chapter 2, we didn't read this, but uh, back in chapter 2, when Eli is confronting his sons, he's saying, what have you guys done? Why have you uh, sinned against your creator God? And, and Eli says this to his sons, but if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? Sons, what hope is there for you? You're sinning against God. We're the interceders. We're the ones as the priests that go in between evil, guilty humans and the holy God. We are the interceders. But if we are the ones that are rebelling against God and blaspheming God and hurting God's people, who can intercede for us? And so there's this great 
kind of hopelessness for sinners and for the enemies in this story who we actually can resonate with and is a part of our story. Yet, the story doesn't end there. The Bible continues, and we're going to see whispers and whispers and foreshadows of the great solution as we go through First and Second Samuel these next few months. But guess what? We know the end of the story. We can get to good news here today. The good news is a new type of priest is coming. The good news is a new type of priest is a new type of interceder is coming. Eli and his family, who represent the old covenant, the, the, the old way, the law, religion, say things like what we just saw here. Who can intercede for us? Those who sin against the Lord. Or in our passage here today, we, we see them say things like, uh, or we see God pronounce judgment on, on them, saying, I swore to the, uh, to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Right? Right there. Hopeless. Right? They're guilty. They're evil. And there's no hope. Their sin will never be forgiven or made right by sacrifices or by offerings. Which just is a, a foreshadow, a picture of what's going on here cannot be the ultimate solution. It, it pushes the story forward. So the law that Eli and his sons represent never could be the final solution, the ultimate remedy. Just as Eli is just uh, claiming here. Who can intercede for us? No sacrifice or offering can atone for what we've did. And it pushes the story forward to say that a better priest must be coming because there is no hope here. And if you look ahead to the New Testament book of Hebrews, huge swaths of Hebrews tells us that the old sacrificial system, the old priesthood, the old law, could never really atone for sin, could never really make people uh, innocent, could never really remove guilt, could never really purify people. So something new had to come. And the good news that's just whispered in our passage, we don't fully see exactly what, what is coming yet in, in, in First and Second Samuel, but we do as we continue through the Bible. We see that in uh, chapter 2 where God says, in contrast to evil priests or a priesthood that just would never work, Jesus or God says, I will raise up for myself. I will do it. A priest who is faithful, who will do according to what uh, is in my heart, in my mind. And I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. So God says, my priesthood I set up with humans is never going to work. So I need to step in and I'm, I'm promising that something better is going to come. I'm going to do it and it's going to work. Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, British uh, preacher from the 19th century, writes about this prophecy here. He says, no doubt first referring to Zadok, who later succeeded to the priest's office, but looking still further forward to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ever faithful high priest and who always does according to what is in the mind and the heart of the Father. So we're going to see whispers of this first Samuel 2.35 prophecy uh, begin to be fulfilled as we go through First and Second Samuel. But we who are Christians or we who live on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection see that 
Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. He is the ultimate high priest that we see repeated again and again throughout the New Testament. He is the solution. And Jesus is what all the priesthood was meant to do. He's the ultimate high priest. He's the ultimate interceder, the person that goes in between guilty humanity and, and, a, and a perfect God. Jesus is the ultimate, pri- uh, ultimate high priest who offers a sacrifice. Eli's saying sacrifices aren't going to work for this type of sin. They will never take away our sin, sons. But Jesus is the ultimate high priest who will offer one sacrifice, and he did once and for all his own body. And we read in Hebrews that he did one sacrifice once and for all, and then he sat down because the work was done. No more animal sacrifices need to happen. No, more, no matter uh, what sin comes about, Jesus' one sacrifice removes our guilt, makes us pure before God, gives us perfection, and the need for more sacrifice ends. This passage that we just read where the New Testament's writing to a church just like us, saying, you were like Phineas and Hophni. You were, you were greedy. You were thieves. You were selfish. You were lustful. You were sexually immoral. That was who you were. But then listen how he ends. Paul here remembers that Jesus is the ultimate high priest who, who offers a sacrifice, who intercedes before us, and who makes you and I pure. This is how this passage ends. But you were washed. You were dirty, you were impure, and now you are washed. You are washed. You are sanctified, which means to be made holy. Past tense, it's already happened. Christian, you went from being guilty and, and evil at your core, prison, a prisoner to death and sin, but you've been washed and you've been made holy. You've been made innocent. You are a saint. You have been sanctified and you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified meaning being declared innocent. Jesus took your sins, your rebellion, onto himself when you put your trust in him and he gave you his innocence. In this great exchange, he took on your guilt and he gave you his innocence. He took on our dirtiness, our brokenness, and gave us his purity and his wholeness. But you, Christian, You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified, declared innocent in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is true of you today, Christian. And if you're not a Christian here today, just look at God's great patience, the way he describes himself. He wants you to know that he is patient, he is faithful, he is loving, that that is a balloon about ready to to, to be Uh, pricked like Dane Ortland said. He deeply loves you. He's patient with you. And if you're here today, uh, whether you realize it or not, he was somehow behind bringing you here because he wants you to know his great love for him. And he offers that to you freely. You don't have to make a sacrifice. You don't have to pay some money. You don't have to go to a human priest. You don't have to do penance to work off the stuff in your past. You just have to trust him. You have to put your faith in this new priest, this high priest, the God-man, Jesus Christ. I want to leave us with just one more quote from Dane Ortland from his book, Gentle and Lowly. 
As we read 1 Samuel 3, even though we've spent lots of time focusing on God's love and patience and mercy, maybe it's just human nature, maybe it's how we've grown up, I don't know what it is, but we're probably still having a hard time believing that God's love for us really is that good, really is that scandalous. We maybe want to believe it, but it just seems too good to be true. We maybe still feel like, yeah, but, but I do know his judgment is just ready to pour out on me that one time I screw up. But listen to how Dane Ortland describes it. A great encouragement for us as we leave here today. He says, the Christian life, from one angle, not all the angles, but from, from one angle, the Christian life is the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over many decades, fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. And we saw that today. From Jesus' words and actions, God the Father's actions all throughout the Old Testament, believe him in who he says he is. This is hard work. It takes lots of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool towards him in the wake of it. So maybe Satan's greatest victory in your life is, is not to get you to gossip and slander the people in your life or to go back to, to lusting after people in your life or dehumanizing them by uh, your words or your thoughts. Maybe Satan's greatest victory in your life is not to tempt you into evil sin, but rather to make you think God is against you. That God is having his arm twisted and doesn't really want to love you or be patient with you or forgive you. Orland's suggesting to us, maybe that's Satan's greatest work, is that when we don't realize how beautiful and great God's love for us is, these other lesser desires, these, all, these evil things are just so much easier to go to. And then when we get there, we get stuck because we think, oh, I failed again. I've gone back to that same sin. I'm so embarrassed. What would people think? What would God think? And, keep, and that keeps us there. But rather, the message of 1 Samuel 3 is that God is a God of patience, a God of forgiveness, a God of love, a God that broke the systems of the priesthood because they could just never fully atone for our sin. And he himself stepped in to say, I will be the ultimate priest. I will make the ultimate sacrifice of my own body on the cross so that they can be made pure, so that they can be made innocent, so that my love and faithfulness and mercy and compassion can be proved to them and so that they never have to forget it. So let's remember that today. Let's encourage each other with that this week. Our friends, our community groups, our roommates, our family members, when we're tempted to kind of go back into those dark places of, of being tempted by sin or in sin and just giving up, 
let us remind each other of the great forgiveness and love that our Savior and Creator offers to us.